The climate is changing. So are we. I'm Laura Lynch, and I host What on Earth? That's CBC's Climate Solutions podcast. Twice a week, we take you around the world to find the people who are trying to build a better future for all of us. We explore Indigenous science, new technologies. We talk openly about mental health and climate anxiety. We also take your smart questions all the time. Come find What on Earth wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Some people say the end is near. Some say that it's already here. When I was driving down that road, I looked to my left and I could see flames. The scariest moment of my life by far. We were getting emergency alerts constantly. Our phones were buzzing. It felt every few moments and... It started to get a little stressful because I think that's when we all realized, okay, this is different. And those stories, from a personal perspective, they're hard to tell. And when you get more close to the story like that, there is a price to pay. Those are CBC reporters, people who run towards the wildfires while the rest of us are running away. In this episode of World on Fire, we'll meet some of the journalists covering Canada's worst fire season ever. They're the people putting a human face on the numbers and trying to make sense of the devastation. We'll hear about the toll this work takes in communities that have lost everything and about finding hope. If you haven't listened to World on Fire before, welcome. I'm your host, Adrian Lamb. Our first seven episodes take us around the world, where wildfires and climate change are creating a new way of living and breathing for all of us. Go back and take a listen. This May, 300 people were forced to leave East Prairie Métis Settlement in northern Alberta. Many houses were lost. And national reporter Aaron Collins was there when resident Ron Bellrose realized his home was gone. It's really impossible it's, it's, to imagine. Like yeah. the, when we look around here, I mean, your house is gone, but there's you know yeah. there's there's greenery still around, and yeah. it's sort of an island of of destruction amidst yeah. things I that just, weren't touched. It's it, hard to. It's just to me just amazing how they how they survived. When I left here, I thought they were they're dead because I just started uh, I just started farming like this is, and I thought I, I had to start again. But then I came here the next morning, and I see my house. It was just totally totally destroyed. Like I was totally lost and. I was talking to my daughter and I, 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 I had no words to tell her, no nothing. And she, you know, it, it's like you're in uh, limbo. Your life goes into limbo because you don't know where you're going to live. You don't know what you're going to do next. You yeah. don't know anything, you know, tomorrow. But you, it's crazy. It's just, you were saying it's, it's yeah. the things inside the house that you lost, yeah. not the house that's yeah, really... Yeah, because the... yeah, all of my, my mentors for my grandkids and yeah. and stuff that, that, I, that I had, like, it, it's... It's stuff like that that you never get back. It, you know, you work so hard for it, and it just disappeared in 24 hours. It's gone. Like your whole life changed. Like it, yeah. it, it, it's very, it's devastating. I'm still trying to. Every time I come here, I just can't still can't believe. It. I walk around and I shake my head to to what happened. Eh? I don't know. I don't know. That's CBC National reporter Aaron Collins talking with the East Prairie Métis resident Ron Bellrose. Now, Aaron is just one of the many CBC reporters covering these devastating wildfires right across the country. Aaron, we heard you with Ron there. What was that moment like for you? 
well, I mean, Adrian, it was, it was powerful for yeah. sure, right? And, uh, and hard. Um, it, it wasn't planned at all. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd been invited by the community to visit and, and check out some of the damaged properties in that, in that uh, settlement. And so we were just sort of setting up to do a live on News Network when Ron strolled in. He wasn't supposed to be there. We didn't know he was going to be there. And we asked him if he'd be game to chat. And he agreed. And that turned into a 20-minute long live interview uh, with Ron. He was just so compelling. I mean, obviously, he was experiencing this tremendous loss. But at the same time, he had this this great perspective on what he hadn't lost, right? It was really powerful moment for me. And the fact that he was willing to sort of share his experience really helped me understand the impact that these fires can have on, on people. How important was it for you to be able to tell his story that way? Really important. Obviously, it, it puts that human face on these wildfire stories that, that can so often become about the numbers. You know, mm-hmm. How many fires are burning? How many are out of control? How many firefighters are on the ground? That kind of thing. But on the ground, this is a story of like fear and loss and of bravery and hope. So Ron, he'd lost his home, but he'd managed to save his cattle. And for him, that provided like a future for his family. And so the day we met him, he was sifting through the ashes of his house, looking for mementos from his grandchildren. Really like just incredible resilience. This is far from the first wildfire you've covered, I know. So walk me back to some of those things that have stayed with you. The first big fire I covered was Slave Lake in 2011. And I remember being in that community when officials like finally let people in to to check things out and just being really struck by the scale of the destruction the first time you see something like that. And also how cruel and arbitrary it all was. Like I remember standing on this beautiful suburban tree-lined street and on one side of the street there's like no damage at all. So it doesn't feel like anything's happened. Meanwhile, right across the road, we're talking meters away, there's nothing left. Total destruction. All the homes are gone. Like these are neighbors. Maybe they're friends. Maybe their kids play together. Mm -hmm. And they're facing these dramatically different outcomes from the same event. And just sort of the randomness of it all really sort of stuck with me. So, you know, since then I've covered Fort Mac and the Heat Dome in BC. And of course, this year's fires here. I've made some trips to California to cover fires there. And there's differences, of course, right? The landscape and the, the size. And But the one thing that's that's always the same is the shock that people have and that sort of arbitrary nature of, of you know, what ends up making it and, and what doesn't. You know, I was in California in 2017 and I ran into Amy Lopez and her husband John and their six children. And they had to leave with just minutes before the fire there came down around their house. They couldn't hear me. We were like 10, 20 feet from each other. We couldn't hear each other. We were, I was yelling because of the wind. the wind. Yeah. And so um, I'm screaming at them, you know, let's go, let's go. And so we all got in the car and... Yeah, headed out the gate, and it was just—it was there was fire everywhere. It was crazy. So there were burn marks above their house, like a hundred feet away from their back door, but their house was fine. So was their livestock. But just down the road from the Lopez's is, is a trailer park with about thirty homes. Half of those burned to the ground. It's important for Canadians who aren't directly impacted by these fires to understand how their fellow citizens are feeling, how it's impacting them. And those stories, from a personal perspective, they're hard to tell. And when you get more close to the story like that, there's a, there is a price to pay. Mm-hmm. you got to open yourself up to sort of that trauma there that folks are feeling. You have to connect with, with their loss and, and um, 
that pain for sure sticks around a bit. Aaron, thanks for making time. Yeah, happy to. This has been an exceptional start to the season. So far this year, wildfires have scorched roughly 9 million hectares. That's an area about the size of Nova Scotia and Vancouver Island combined. 32,000 international firefighters have answered the call to help, more than ever before in Canadian history. One place that rarely sees these kinds of wildfires is Nova Scotia. Even the capital of the province wasn't spared. One fire in particular damaged 150 homes and more than 200 structures near the city of Halifax. Thousands were evacuated. Halifax reporter Allie Thompson found herself in an unusual position of not only reporting on the Tentalan fire, but having to flee it with her family. Allie, tell me what happened. It was sunny. It was beautiful outside. We were all on a friend's deck a few doors down from where I live. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the kids were, were swimming in the pool. We were just having a good time. All of a sudden, I, st- I noticed that the lighting of the environment changed. Mm. Uh, there was this glow, this sort of orangey glow. And I thought, oh, that's strange. And we looked up into the sky and there was smoke. Then we started hearing from our friends in Westwood Hills, which is a nearby subdivision, about a fire that had broken out and that they were being evacuated from their homes. So we were, you know, watching this smoke come up, keeping in touch with them because there was a bit of a hysteria going on in that community, given there was Mm -hmm. only one exit. Mm. So there was quite a backup of traffic. There was a lot of panic. But we were not thinking at that point that we would be affected by this. Then the smoke started to get thicker and thicker. You know, we could notice that the actual air quality was changing. Uh, So we thought, you know what, I think we better go home and just prepare for the worst. The worst did happen. My husband is a firefighter, so he's actually quite calm usually in in these sorts of situations. And I don't want to say dismissive, but, you know, he's not, he's definitely not a panicked person. But he received a phone call. And once he hung up the phone, he said, we got to go right now. So that's when the panic set in a bit for me. We were just literally throwing things into the car, trying to think of important things that you would bring in such a situation, thinking that we'd maybe be back in a few hours or something, but not really knowing the scale of what was happening. I got my kids into the car. My husband was driving another car. We started on our way. It was very eerie leaving the subdivision. I mean, it was an exodus. You could see people peering out of their windows, packing their cars furiously. There was a lineup of cars to get out of the subdivision. When I pulled out of my subdivision, you could not go left, which is where where Westwood Hills is. Mm -hmm. We had to go right, which we now know is exactly where the fire ended up. We drove down a road that was consumed by fire hours later. And in fact, when I was driving down that road, I looked to my left and I could see flames behind the houses there. It was incredibly intense. The scariest moment of my life by far, just having my children in the back and not knowing if we would be able to get to safety because we were bumper to bumper on that road. There were cars whipping up the other side of the road to try to escape the situation. Looking back, it's emotional because I was looking at a fire that would have 
crossed the exact spot I was in in maybe a matter of minutes later and then would go on to destroy homes very, very nearby to my own. My home is fine. My home was fine. But, you know, once I was to safety, I sprang into reporter mode and called the desk and said, you know, whatever you guys need, uh, you know, I'm here. Uh, So I ended up doing uh, a hit on our live broadcast, which started around 7 p.m. that evening. We still didn't know very much at that point. So I was kind of telling a story like I did just now about what had happened. After that, and after the dust had settled and we were safely at my mother-in-law's and we lost our heads down to go to sleep, I will never forget the feeling I had of not knowing what was happening to your home. You try to focus on the fact that you're safe and that your kids are safe, Mm. but it it was just such a horrible feeling being so uh, unaware of what what the situation was and the scale of what was happening. What was it like to be reporting on the wildfire that that he was actually fighting? It was hard. I talked a lot to people about, you know, they'd ask me how I'm doing. And you kind of say, like, you're in survival mode. Mm -hmm. I really felt a sense of purpose to do my job as a journalist. Mm -hmm. While all those firefighters were out there putting their lives on the line, I felt a duty to inform not only the public, but the people of my community, my home community. And in fact, you know, people even just in my group of friends, because I now know that four families that I'm very close with lost their homes. So I felt a great purpose in this situation. It was hard knowing that um, my husband and brother-in-law were out there fighting the fires. My husband only became a firefighter last year, so neither of us have really experienced anything like this. He had certainly never fought a fire like this. Uh, I had never had to deal with him fighting a fire like this. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of emotions, you know, wor- worried emotions that came up there. Work became a welcome distraction from that. And I think at the end of the day, just given my unique situation, I just felt a real sense of purpose uh, as a journalist to tell this story. I will be looking at wildfires differently because I've been personally impacted, but I think all Nova Scotians now are looking at wildfires differently. Tonight, as wildfires explode across Quebec, Nova Scotia homeowners see how much they have lost. It makes it real. You know, you, you look at it and there's absolutely nothing. <laughs> there's nothing. When I went up, I was hoping that my my shed, my garage would still be there, but nothing. There's absolutely nothing left on our road. Travis McEwen is based in Edmonton, and he's seen his share of wildfires over the years. But this season, it's felt like the entire province of Alberta has been burning. No matter where you went, you had smoke coming from all over the place, and there is a lot of panic. I think people thought this was going to be, everyone would have to evacuate at some point. Yeah. So I was sent to Grand Prairie to keep an eye out on the fires out that way. But I think the part for also me and um, the cameraman I was working with, who's actually Dave, who's working on the camera here on the podcast as well, we were supposed to just kind of be out there too because roads were getting shut down all over the place. Mm-hmm. Two to three hour drives were taking six to seven. When I was in Grand Prairie, I focused a lot on the aftermath at Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation. It was about an hour east of there. At the time when we got out there, we didn't know a lot. We just knew there was about 40 homes and structures 
had, had burned. Mm-hmm. And we really only knew that from a Facebook Live from the chief on the first day we were out there. Chief and council did these updates, which is something we saw a lot so far this year. Yeah. These updates for residents, they're on coming Facebook through municipalities, or, yeah. yeah, YouTube, Facebook. And mm-hmm. so it keeps residents up to date, but also that's where we end up getting a lot of their information as well. Mm-hmm. It's kind of eerie, right? When you go through and you can see you're in a highway that's open and everything's burned on each side. Fences all burned down. You, from there, you could see at least a home that had been burned. Vehicles all around it as well still there. You could tell that people just had to take off, right? Yeah. And then you've got electrical posts and things like that. A lot of smoldering on the ground. And it's always kind of eerie. David Banger, he was with you. I'm going to bring him in now because he's here in the studio with us. Dave, what do you remember about that experience? You know, as a visual person, you know, Trav can attest to this as well. You try to show that eeriness, that desolation, that that burning, and then bring the human factor in. But you have to drive through it to understand it. Both sides of the road, the ditches are smoldering. Both tree lines are, are burnt out. And then it's a bit of green, and then it's more burnt out stuff. That's when it hits you. Now you have to, to focus on your role within that and show that to the best of your ability without getting overwhelmed, if that, if that makes any sense. So it's trying to bring in perspective in the work and then humanizing it for the public. Mm -hmm. But it's a weird thing, too, when you're kind of like this gawker who's like, you know, those people who drive through and want to stop and go slow. And but that's literally what we have to stop for. And that's our job. When did you get onto the Cree Nation? Well, days later, uh, we actually got uh, an escort. So it was two security guards and a video producer, myself. And, you know, when I say security guards, too. These guys that were all around this town blocking any entrance and exit into the town, they were all just men who were living from the Cree Nation. Regular people. Who, yeah, yeah, who were just out of their homes and looking for work. So they were just guys who were set up, and they were usually very friendly and talked with us. And yeah. So two of them took us on this tour. I drove with one security guard, and Dave, who was with me, was in the other one as mm-hmm. well. And everything's roasted from the wildfire. Four days later, you can already see these grass sprouts green coming through the the new hope, the change, right? Which always kind of sticks with you. I've seen that before, and it's kind of weird. I swear, like a block away, you've got electrical posts hanging because the bottoms had burned, and they're hanging from the trees still smoldering. For the thing that kind of stands out, too, is spot where there is a building that had burned and it was kind of three in one it was like a tribal council a space for like seniors and elders in the area and more of kind of like a infrastructure like administrative type building Mm -hmm. and so that it all burned and was collapsed in but beside it there's like this row of seven or eight trucks and they all look in good condition but they're just sitting there and so one of the security guards slash tour guides tells us, man, I would love to have these trucks because we've got all these guys and, and no trucks, and I'd love to get them. And so, well, why can't you? And he said, well, the keys were in these buildings that burned. No way. <laughs> yeah. So they did, couldn't get the keys. So these, these trucks all just had to sit there, right? For me, I, you know, I've, I focus on each shot just one at a time. And I think that's where the partnership comes in with, you know, somebody else like, like Travis being on the ground where he can maybe talk with, you know, the security guards. I didn't actually hear that key story until just now. Mm. I didn't realize that. But I remember seeing images at the community building. You're you're focused on it and you can see a cabinet. Everything around it is, is black and burnt, but this cabinet made of metal is still standing. Those moments hit you. And I think what Dave's saying there too resonates with me where it's like, 
it's a good reminder when you go into these areas and it's not just work for us where you do feel emotions still when you're shooting it that you feel bad because it is someone's home you know there's loss and you got to portray that and it's a reminder for us i think in our jobs that there's still humanity as a part of us as we do it which is uh which is good i think yeah. it's a good thing to feel and tend to know i wonder when it hits you like when does that emotion hit you i don't know if there's a distinct answer for that right like when we first traveled, we were heading up to Grand Prairie. We didn't actually stop in uh, Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation because we weren't allowed to. Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't even anywhere to stop on the highway um, to get some shots of the area. They wanted you to strictly drive through. So we, we were heading to Grand Prairie directly. You kind of get it there, but once you come back into town and, and you start seeing, okay, this is these people's homes. They're at the hotel, haven't been evacuated. And then you get a tour of the location but these people don't know that their house has been destroyed. That's when it really hits you. Even the security guards were, they were pretty jovial folks, mm -hmm. I thought, but you could tell the impact on them and you, you understand that the gravity of where you are. Often we're going to centers where people are staying or evacuation spaces where these people have been moved to. What do you remember about covering those places and those interactions and conversations? In the years past, it'd be like people come to evacuation center, stay for a few days, stay on cots, right? But this year, I think because we've been through this so much and people have learned what people want, they're putting them up in hotels right away. They're staying with friends right away. So these evacuation centers have just been for like assistance. But I was at River Cree and I met three generations of a family from Sturgeon Lake. It was a um, grandmother, mother, and a young kid around probably 10 or 11 years old. And they're staying at a hotel in Edmonton. But they were just going to this evacuation center in the afternoons. They really missed was community, seeing the people, you know, these friendly faces that they knew. They just wanted to see them and talk with them. And I think that's a part of something we forget about in this, where people are pulled away from their homes, is that they really don't have that community when they're staying in all these hotels, and they really do miss that. Unfortunately, we're a medium that's very intrusive. And now I'm going to stick this giant camera with a big light and a microphone in your face and tell me all your personal things. You really feel the gravity of things and the unknown, right? There's there's a lot of confusion at the centers because everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's getting information from different places, mm -hmm. so that's circulating. It's sensitivity of information and connection with people. A lot of it's just telling those the emotional stories and also having that patience for people as well, right? I'm glad I haven't really lost that, you know, because for those people, it's all sensitive. It's all new. It's How do you think it's changed you? Mm. I think the way I interact with people in these stories and that and, and working on their terms and that always in, made me kind of a sensitive reporter in that regard too. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to ever kind of lose that. I've tried to keep up with people and check on their situations and not just for like a future story to check in and do another one. But, but as a person. Just as a person to see yeah. how they're doing, right? How do you think covering the wildfires in 2023 has changed you? Um grateful for what you have. I don't know, every experience is, is different. I don't know if I could define how it's changed me as of yet, maybe some more reflection, but you know, you, you take those images with you. I, you know, I, can, I can't speak for Travis, but you know, you wake up and flashes of images that you've captured that may have not ever seen the light of day, but they're on the tape. So just bringing that with you. I'm so grateful for you both. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. 
This spring, CBC Edmonton's Corey Seegers was covering the Alberta wildfires, including one near her hometown of Drayton Valley. Years before, she reported on the worst wildfire in Alberta history. The Fort McMurray fire in 2016 was dubbed the Beast. And it's a fire that changed Corey's life. As journalists, we run towards the danger, often with little thought about the route that takes us there. In 2016, I was sent to Fort McMurray as a field producer, someone who helps organize the teams of videographers, reporters, and live trucks on the ground. There isn't much about that first 48 hours I don't remember, but the first 10 days are a blur. It's been described as catastrophic, but this afternoon the fire, which has already caused so much devastation, particularly in the city's southwest, continued to grow. I I would say it's been the it's been the worst day of my career looked out the back of the patio and within 200 meters i saw flames that were you know 100 feet high my teams were in the city as the fire roared in and were still there as we packed up to leave we had many conversations that first day where could they go that was safe where they wouldn't get stuck either in the flood of evacuees or blocked by the fire itself once we knew they found a safe spot to hunker down we made our way north We knew the dangers of the fire, but we saw firsthand the dangers of the evacuation as well. We drove north on Highway 63. We were alone in the northbound lanes, passed periodically by fire trucks and other emergency vehicles, rushing from all over the province to help. As we passed the stream of vehicles crawling along the southbound lane, we suddenly found ourselves looking straight into the headlights of oncoming vehicles. We quickly moved to the shoulder, watching line after line trying to escape by driving on the wrong side of the highway desperately trying to find a route to safety. It was then that I realized the danger wasn't kilometers ahead in Fort Mac. It was everywhere we were trying to go. Six hours on the road, and we finally found a camp with a few spare rooms. We had quick naps before heading back out. There was little time for rest, for us or for the people fleeing or fighting the fire. The evacuation began with cars driving through flaming streets, but it lasted so much longer than that. There were people who couldn't make it far that first night, in convoys of family waiting hours just to get gasoline. People were still fleeing the following morning as we gathered our gear and much-needed food for crews who hadn't eaten since the day before. As we drove down the highway, a fireball shot up from the trees just around the corner ahead of us. Seconds before we made that turn, two teenagers, part of one of those convoys of families, were killed in a fiery head-on crash. We drove up, moments later, helpless. We watched the family as that terrible realization set in. We tried to offer help, knowing there was nothing any of us could do. We knew emergency crews were on the way, so we drove on, driving through the ditch, away from the explosions coming from the fiery wreck on the other side of the highway. Every part of me wanted to turn around and go home. Every part of me knew that this was a crisis point in our province, And going home would mean not only letting my team down, but it also felt like I'd be failing the community that was relying on us for information. I took a deep breath, and we went on. As I looked up, a cloud of dust on the hill ahead, a truck flipping end over end with debris flying everywhere, another terrible accident. We pulled over, called 911, tried to get emergency crews to the right spot while others rushed to help a person thrown from the vehicle. Maybe it was the chaos of the moment, the disbelief that this was happening again. 
the adrenaline that didn't have a chance to stop. But I knew I had to keep going. What we were doing was important. Through the days that followed, we kept on the move. Our bags packed at all times, sleeping in different camps, different towns. People stopped to thank us for being there, for helping them know what was going on inside their community. We shared their harrowing stories, their resilience. We captured a moment of Alberta history that will be forever part of the makeup of this province. But it broke me. As a journalist, I knew I had a job to do. As a human being, it took years to recover from the trauma of that day. I know that I wasn't alone. That trauma was shared by evacuees in story after story in the years since. This spring, I was sent out to cover the fires in Alberta. I was sitting along the edge of my hometown of Drayton Valley, watching towering columns of smoke bear down on a community I know so well. My phone filled with messages from family members, from colleagues, making sure I was okay covering another fire. When we cover these stories, these large-scale disasters, there is so much chaos, so many decisions that need to be made, so many questions that need to be asked. But now, I always try to make my first question, whether it be my colleagues or the people we meet, are you okay? And I've learned it's okay to say no. A few provinces over, Quebec is experiencing a summer of hot temperatures and out-of-control wildfires. We have some breaking news for you out of Quebec. A mandatory evacuation order has been issued for the town of La Belle-sur-Quévillon over the threat of an encroaching wildfire. Uh, we're hoping to tell people, to tell Quebecers that uh, they will be able to, uh, to going back home, but in the short term, it's, it won't be possible. Just keeping the power on in some communities is a challenge. CBC reporter Kobina Odiro has been in the field. At the time that the fires started making the news, they said that they could only fight about 20 to 25 fires with the capacity, but there were already 100 fires and a lot of them were out of control. So they got some reinforcements coming in and then they were able to fight about 30 of them. We're talking about firefighters from France. We're talking about the Canadian Armed Forces. We're talking about firefighters from the United States. We're talking about water bar- bombers coming from the United States. Even at one point, the smog hundreds of kilometers away was reaching Montreal. So the skies were orange and the air quality was terrible. So I do want to tell you one story about one evacuee that really touched my heart because I felt really bad for her. There was this 16-year-old girl who was getting ready to go to her prom and her graduation ceremony. And I was in Robert Val, so it's a small town in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And I, she told me that she was very sad because this is the biggest moment of high school. You know, prom and graduation, it's something that you, you really feel, right? It did get rescheduled, but in the moment, she was just like, I'm really sad about it. And she showed me the prom dress. Now, this prom dress was blue. It had sparkles. It would have looked great on her. Her date was ready, and it was just sad to hear her talk about that moment. And that's one moment that I was like, wow, like Mm. this really affects people day to day. I talked to some seniors who were really affected. One woman told me about how she just left her house and she um, poured kibble on the floor for her cat so her cat wouldn't starve because she couldn't bring her cat with her. Oh, wow. So to keep the cat alive. Oh, gosh. Exactly. I did get an update from her when they were able to return home. And she told me that the cat is safe. The house is in one piece, so she's very happy. But that was like a scary moment for her. And when I was talking to her, 
she was really sad. But another thing that I do want to tell you is that the people in the Saguenay region, so we're talking like Robert Val, Shakutami, they were very welcoming with community members that were coming in. Now, people were saying like, I will take people in. So at the peak, when people from Shibugomo got evacuated, they went to this sports center in uh, Robert Val. And there was about 700 people who were staying there. As the days went on, only a dozen people were there. It was very nice to really talk to these people. And I even met with uh, Maggie Edwards and her husband, Luke Legacy, and they said that they were trying so hard to stay positive. I'm trying to just not worry about it too much. We have, we just bought our house a year ago. So, <laughs> you know, we literally like a, a year basically to the day. So we're just hoping for the best. And, and I think, you know, based on the news we've gotten, it seems like the effort there has been really, really strong and we've had mostly good news. So we're hoping that things are turning around and, you know, going to turn out for the best. It has been extremely welcoming. Um, just the community and like the staff who are assisting with everything have been very, very friendly. Um, we've had several offers from families within town to say, look, if you ever have issue with, in terms of like needing a place to stay, we're welcoming you into our home. Feel free to reach out to us. So it's it's been a very, very sort of scary experience, but also very positive to see how much the community has rallied behind this issue. It was also my first time going to that area. So I was exploring Quebec, but the people over there are so, so nice. In Quebec, we're predominantly French, right? That is the reality of the province. But over there, people were trying to speak English. I was speaking French to them because I'm capable. But it was just like everyone was welcoming and they were really willing to tell me their stories. And I found that that was one of the moments where I was like, wow, people here are really positive. I'm asking people, how are you feeling? They're like, oh, we're sad. We're worried about our home. But we're a community and we're still together. The Cree community of Uje Bugumu, they got evacuated and they ended up in Shikudami. One of the uh, people I spoke to said that it makes it better that the community was able to stay together. Are you guys happy? Yeah. You're very happy? Yeah. No. No. Oh, you want to go home? Yeah. You miss home? Yeah. Uh, I miss home too. Shall we tell this guy we love Ojibogmo? Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll all say, we love Ojibogmo. One, two, three. Everybody look over there, a big smile. One, two, three. We yeah. love Ojibogmo. <laughs> Are there moments that have hit you about the intensity of this wildfire season so far? When I was sent out to the evacuee towns, it was just a thing of like just seeing the fear in people's eyes, but the people being hopeful. When I realized how much reinforcements we needed from all over the world, that was when I was like, this is going to be serious. And I'm just hoping that it doesn't get worse than it did this year because. With climate change and global warming, things are not looking the best for Quebec forest fires. National reporter Katie Nicholson has been covering some of the most devastating wildfires in recent memory. Katie was there when Linton, B.C. burned to the ground two years ago. And she was here in Alberta this spring, most recently in high level. Katie, what's it been like to cover so many of these wildfires? I think on a, a practical level, you sort of pick up a lot of safety or survival habits or even just strange little things that you learn about smoke. Um, I get teased sometimes every time before we send reporters out. I, I throw a whole bunch of information at them, like don't wear a mascara uh, in the smoke because the particulate matter will stick to your eyeballs and you might get an infection and make sure you bring extra contact lenses because the smoke will, will sort of attach to your lenses. And that's sort of stuff that's happened to me 
sort of through experience where mm. um, I find myself in a, in a pharmacist's office um, in the middle of, you know, week three or four of covering this stuff because I can't get my contacts in my eyes anymore, that sort of thing. You're always thinking about escape routes, maps, what to do if, say, a cell tower burns down for communication. How are you going to get out of a place? What do you do if the smoke becomes so intense it blocks out the sun and it becomes dark, which is something that's happened to me out in Armstrong, BC. And you, you now have headlamps because you might not be able to see the gear that you're trying to pack up before you move or to set up for a, a hit because the, the sky is basically turned like something from Mars. There's also this resignation to fatigue when you you know you're going into a community like this uh, that's been affected by fire. These are going to be long hours, but no matter what kind of hours you are going to have as a journalist, there are people who are having even more of an exhausting period of time, people who are displaced from their homes, people who are dealing with an influx of, of new people, a demand on resources. And then I think that also leads to a way that you think about logistics, right, and respectful logistics. You're going into a fire zone and you're thinking about all of those displaced people, how little lodging there might be. Um, mm. So you try to have a small crew. You don't want to take beds away from climate refugees, uh, someone displaced from their home. And you're also thinking about um, the fact that all of those beds are also going to be taken up by fire crews mm. and support crews. Uh, so even before you start telling the story or shoot a single frame, there's all of this other stuff that you're thinking about to do your job safely and um, effectively with minimal impact on, on communities that are already struggling with evacuation orders. What are some of those moments or, or people that have stayed with you? I think one of the most shocking things was was the speed with which Lytton just burned off the map. That's really extreme example of, of that extreme heat, that heat dome, those dry conditions, and then a really powerful wind just created that lethal combination um, and it was out there that I met a, a former firefighter. His name was Alfred Higginbottom, and I'm still in contact with him. He's part of a, a ba- the band there. And uh, every fire season now, he, we chat and check in with each other. He sends me pictures of the extra steps he's tried to take out in the canyon area uh, to further fireproof his property and his home. And he just sort of clear cuts all the way around. Uh, he lives just outside of Lytton. Uh, and, you know, he, he's such a... a, a, a depth of knowledge about the the conditions there, about past fires. And he also happens to have a, a forestry degree. So he has such a great read of what's happening in the BC interior every year. Um, and he, he talked to me about the day that he decided he could no longer be a firefighter. He just escaped just with less than seconds. Um, this wind came up through uh, a very grassy area. He was sort of um, hanging over a cliff. He just got pulled out from this wall of fire that was moving up very quickly. Um, and and it was such a close call that that's when he decided he, he couldn't do it anymore. That's a toll uh, or a story even that we don't really get into is is the close calls for, for many of the people who are out on the front lines mm. in some of these areas fighting fires um, and, and just trying to mitigate them before they can cross over into even more uh, populated areas or, you know, just spread. Um, but most recently, uh, it was the last day actually that I was in high level, I spoke with an 80-year-old woman from Chate who was displaced. And you might remember by the time that Chate was evacuated, all the hotels in high level were full mm-hmm. already from evacuees yeah. from the east. And so, so many people ended up just staying in tents, including this elder. It just really sort of sticks with me, the exhaustion, the resignation, what it is you have to put up with. And, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are, right? 
And I guess finally, just one thought, just the the exhausted voice messages uh, from the chief of Little Red. One night he was driving to his parents for a nap. I was trying to arrange to, to meet up with him for an interview. And just the exhaustion, the cracks in his voice, it just sort of speaks to the burden that those in leadership trying to arrange shelter and food for people and the toll that that takes on you. You just hear that in people's voice and you, you almost feel bad as a journalist that you're taking up someone's time and energy to to talk to them who are someone who is is just weighed down with all of these responsibilities to so many people who've, who've lost homes. Do you think you've been changed doing this kind of reporting? I think so. I mean, I... I I think I've become more attuned to the dangers, um, just going out in the country, mm-hmm. uh, going out to a cottage or something like yeah. that. It's it's hard not to, and it it also makes you your outlook, I think, on the future a little more bleak. I, I find myself more and more worrying about the the world that my niece and nephew are, are going to inherit, where these these types of events are happening um it feels more and more and and certainly this this past summer so far being quite unprecedented in canada so what is the future what is you know you you think about this being the new normal possibly and and what does that mean for future generations i think a lot more about that on a personal level it's hard not to be changed i think when you you meet so many people who who have lost everything in fire it stays with you I just want to hold you while the world burns. I just want to hold you while the world burns. Let it burn, burn, burn. This early wildfire season has seen reporters head from one spot to the next trying to keep people informed and out of harm's way. In just one month, Edmonton-based national reporter Julia Wong was in the communities of White Court, Drayton Valley, the Shining Bank area in northern Alberta, as well as East Prairie Métis Settlement, then in Edson, and then off to High Prairie, documenting the destruction, but also the resilience. When things started out at the end of April, I don't know if any of us, at least in the news, could have imagined that things would be the way that they were. This wildfire season has been really different from others I've I've covered. Like I um, was part of the the coverage during the 2016 Fort Mac fire. I was up in high level during uh, 2019 for that fire. Oftentimes, you could get a sense of where things were going. This was very different. There were several moments, especially during the first week or so, where we were getting emergency alerts constantly on our phones. It started to get a little stressful because I think that's when we all realized, okay, this is different. This is different this year because there are so many communities who are all burning at the same time. And you could just feel that there were, you know, so many more people impacted this time around than perhaps other wildfire seasons. As reporters and and camera people, we were cascading all across the province, whereas previously we might have gone to, you know, here's one community that's affected. Now it was, okay, we have three crews who are going everywhere and and trying to be in in as many places as possible. The scope and the magnitude of that became pretty obvious uh, quite early on. I'm constantly amazed at the resilience of people 
I'm constantly amazed at how willing people are to speak with us during times of crisis. It feels nice that they're willing to share with us so we can then share that with the rest of the country. You know, I'm thinking about evacuees who I met near Tomahawk, so they were waiting to get back in Drayton Valley. Some of them had, you know, big RVs, big fancy RVs. Some of them had small RVs. And there's this one woman who just pitched a tent. She just had a tent, and it was her and her cat. And I remember uh, seeing her pillow and a blanket inside the tent. And she had a little camp set with her to, um, you know, boil some water, make some coffee. And I think she was making breakfast that morning that we, we spoke with her. And I was like, why are you living in a tent? She mentioned that she had family in Edmonton. And I was just trying to, to figure out what was it that compelled her to want to be in a tent when she could have perhaps been at a hotel or been in someone's apartment. And she said she just wanted to be as close by as possible so that when that evacuation order lifted, she could be one of the first people in town. She could break down her tent, get in her car, and just drive back in, into Drayton Valley. The fact that people have so much of a connection to their homes and wanting to be home as soon as they can, um, it's a really beautiful thing. It can also be a really emotional thing. There were evacuees from that you know, kind of same area in Tomahawk who they were still waiting to find out when they could go home. And then we learned that morning it might still be another week. And I remember approaching a woman and I was like, you know, have you heard this news? And I was the first person to tell her that. And she started crying. Like she was just so upset. That uncertainty, that unknown was, was a lot for her. But you see such a range when you're speaking with people. Some people handle it really well. There are families who I've talked to who were like, yeah, we're just pretending like we're camping and it's totally fine and we'll go home and we go home and we're just making the best out of a bad situation. And, you know, that's beautiful to see. And, and other people have a harder time because there are so many unknowns. You know, it's such a privilege to be able to talk to people in this situation and you just get really inspired by the resilience that you see. You get inspired by how people are coping. In Alberta, we always know we're going to have wildfire, bad wildfires. And I think this year has really changed how some of us see wildfires and see covering wildfires. So I think next year we'll all be waiting in anticipation. In the end, you know, people care about something because other people are impacted. When we can get those stories, when we can tell people about a man like Jason, who we met in East Bank, who was just puttering around his property with a water tank on his back and a little little hose that he was just using to try to put out hot spots himself because there were so many fires, there weren't fire crews in his area. Like Those are the stories that really stick with you and those are the people that really stick with you. And so I hope, you know, amongst all the numbers and stuff, that we never forget the people. That's it for this episode of World on Fire. I want to thank all of the CBC reporters who made time to talk with us. Just a few of the many people continuing to cover the wildfires from coast to coast. Behind the scenes here helping tell these stories, Leslie Goldstone, Corey Haverstock, and Claire Bonnyman. I'm Adrian Lamb. Aaron Collins, CBC News, on the East Prairie Métis Settlement in Alberta. Allie Thompson, CBC News, Ferguson's Cove. Travis McEwen, CBC News, Evansburg. Dave Bager, CBC News, Edmonton. Corey Seegers, CBC News, Edmonton. Kubino Duro, CBC News, Montreal. 
Katie Nicholson, CBC News, near White Court, Alberta. Julia Wong, CBC News, near Entwistle, Alberta. Let it burn, burn, burn. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.